you guys know any uh, Frampton? Does this guy look like Peter Frampton? Do you feel like I do? I don't have any 80s, 70s hits with me today. I'm sorry, but Paul Schaefer in the late night band, ladies and gentlemen. You guys rock. I don't know how you could sit there. You're going to go charismatic, I'm telling you. You're just going to all be filling the aisles. <laughs> you are very blessed. I, it's so great for, to be here. I wish it were under different circumstances. But uh, because of my love for Todd and our ministry together at Front Range Christian, um, when I saw him on Friday morning and haven't quite seen him that way before, I realized that he needed a something that he deeply cares about, which is you and being a pastor to you. I felt that I could unburden him because he doesn't like to he doesn't take lightly leaving the pulpit, as you know. So I'm very grateful to be here. And I, I just want to say, Steve, you were up. It was Steve who was mentioning about wild at heart. Is it Steve? Where are you, Steve? Yeah. I just want to say as a word of encouragement to your band of brothers that Wild at Heart, next to the Word of God, was the book after my wife's death that reignited the pilot light in my heart. My, my stepmom gave me a copy of that. I devoured it, and it reminded me of how God built me to be a man who, who um, seeks an adventure to live and a woman uh, to, um, to, to bring out a woman's beauty and to... All the things that he talks about, powerful book. It's not about going out in the woods and playing with snakes. It really is about being the man God called you to be. And even in the fog and the confusion of what it means to be a man and trying to fix things, which we're always trying to do. So I just wanted to say, powerful book. And I have become a major um, fan of John Eldridge because of how he communicates. Uh, so I encourage you gentlemen to take advantage of that. And $5 a book. My goodness, how could you pass that up? Anyway, I want to talk a little bit about Martin Luther, not King Jr., but Martin Luther, the reformer, the, the man who put the P in Protestant. He had an interesting childhood. He started out in poverty. He says of, him, of his own background, he says, my parents were very severe. Um, I am the son of a peasant. My father, my grandfather and all my ancestors were genuine peasants. My father was a poor miner, and my mother carried the wood from the forest on her back. They both worked their flesh off their bones in order to bring up their children. But his parents also believed in not sparing the rod. He says of his mother, quote, My mother once beat me with a cane for stealing a nut until the blood came. Such strict discipline drove me to the monastery, and although she meant well, although she meant well, my father once flogged me so cruelly that I fled away from him and came to bear a grudge against him. And it was a long time until he again won my confidence. It would make sense to know that Martin Luther struggled with a tremendous amount of depression and anxiety in his life. And particularly what he was anxious was about, about was his own salvation, was knowing for sure that the father loved him as he struggled to understand his own biological father's love. He said from early childhood, again, I'm quoting from him, I was accustomed to turn pale and tremble whenever I heard the name of Christ mentioned, for I was taught to look upon him as a stern and wrathful judge. We were taught that we ourselves had to atone for our sins, and since we could not make sufficient amends or do acceptable works, our teachers directed us to the saints in heaven and made us call upon Mary, the mother of Christ, and implore her to avert us from Christ's wrath and make him inclined to be merciful towards us. So Luther spent a great amount of time in his childhood, in his youth, trying to appease this God that he, was, he understood through his own father. By the way, his father 
parented him and by the teachings of the church that here's a God who is deeply, deeply upset with you. I thought it was interesting that video that you showed, Craig, because God, they say, is coming back and he's not happy and he's coming back to exercise his wrath. We do know he's coming back to judge, but he's he's talking about a person who is in Christ. What is our relationship with God once we have our sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ? But he spent his whole early life trying to appease this God who he felt was never able to be appeased, this judgmental, wrathful God. And to make it all worse, his father had planned a career in law for him. He said, you're going to be better than me. You're going to have more opportunities than me. You're not going to live in poverty like we did. So his father provided the means for him to be able to get an education and go to law school. And he was actually intending to do that until an experience happened when Luther was 22 years of age and he was caught in a thunderstorm and lightning struck very close to him. It literally put him on his face to the ground. It just barely missed him. And he cried out to St. Anne, the, the mother of Mary, if she would save him, he would become a monk. That is quite a thing to say in a moment of duress, but that's what he did. And th- therefore, God spared him. And to th- his father's great and deep disappointment, Martin Luther goes from pursuing a degree in law to going to become an Augustinian monk. And now there were two fathers who were deeply upset with him, his father in heaven and his earthly dad. But while he became a monk, he was still trying to figure out what was the key that would unlock the, the door to the father's love for me. And he says of his own experience as a monk, because he was like a super monk. I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear this out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other work. Now, interestingly enough, because this man was so gifted, because he was very gifted in speaking, he was also gifted in languages, he gave, provided the Germans with their first translation of the Bible in German, his, his superiors decided, you need to be a priest. Now, I want to encourage those of you that are standing on the fence or or kind of straddling the fence because somebody is asking you to consider ministry. And the first thing you come back with is, I got all these hang-ups. Well, we know you do. We have them. All of us do. Here they say, you know, even though you're not sure you have, a, you, have, you have peace with God, why don't you become a priest? Let's just put you into the priesthood. So he becomes a priest. In hindsight, that was a very bold move, but it was also a very strategic move for Martin Luther because he was still bound by fear of God's judgment. He says he could barely handle the Eucharist, the communion, without trembling because he knew, as the church taught, that he was handling the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. And he could hardly do that. It's like, oh my goodness, what if I drop it? He would go to confession. He would confess to another priest. And he always would wonder after he left the confessional, did I give, did I confess everything that I get it all out is there anything left over because if I'm to die right now there's something that is has been has been left undone and God's going to hold that against me it's going to strike me down was he doing enough to be saved because God in his mind was like his own father and he was a deep disappointment to his own dad so he put that over his relationship with his heavenly father as well how could God love such an ogre as him and what Martin Luther realized before another epiphany was that he did not love God. He really resented him because how do you make peace with this guy who has said, this is my standard. This is my standard of what it means to live a righteous life. 
And so he continued to live in fear. But by the grace of God, another lightning bolt struck. But this one not out of heaven, not literal lightning. He was teaching at the University of Wittenberg, and he happened to be teaching on the book of Romans. Again, here's a man who's paralyzed about the, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, and here he is teaching Romans. And he comes to Romans chapter 1, verse 17. The righteous shall live by faith. And something happened. Have you ever had that experience where you've read a passage before? You may even be teaching it. And all of a sudden, you look at this passage and your eyes, almost like the veil comes off, and you see it in a way that has never impacted you before. And you've read it so many times, but you happen to be in that place in your life where you're receptive to it now. You get it. And it invades your heart and it frees you up. And there was something that happened to this man once he realized that there's a righteousness that I am not supposed to live up to in my own power in trying to make him happy. Because I could never make my dad happy. God's like my dad, therefore it's impossible. When, he, when the chains fell off, he realized that, no, the righteousness of God is given to me. In the, in the eyes of the Father, I am as righteous as his son. And that, to him, opened up a window and fresh air. And the freedom came in. And he was never the same. And therefore, he was able to step up and say, I believe what the church of that day was teaching is wrong. I believe that we are keeping people in bondage. I now know what it means to live in freedom. I want others to be free. And so he protested, and we became his um, ancestors. We are Protestants. We are those who say, no, there's righteousness that's given, imputed by faith. Even the faith that we have is given by God. We're able to love him because he first loved us, not because we're, we're, we're able to measure up to his expectations. And so it freed him. And so Martin Luther says this in pondering that experience. Night and day, he says, I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us. It's what he does to us and for us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Isn't that what the scriptures are supposed to do? Isn't that what it's intended to do, is free us from the tyranny of always trying to make God happy? And you see those posters, and you saw those banners, the protesters in the video, and you saw God hates you. He is coming and he's not happy. Is there going to be wrath reserved for those who've not placed their hope and trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life? Absolutely. But what is it that draws us to Christ? Is it fear of punishment or is it his kindness that leads us to repentance? As Paul said in Romans. This leads me to the verse I want to touch on very briefly with you today. And I'd like you to turn to 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, if you would. 1 John chapter 4. Right before the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, this is the first book. John writes this as an, um, an old man, the last of the surviving original 12. And he says something in 1st John 4:18, which is relevant to the experience that Luther has had and the experience that I have had and continue to struggle with. 1st John 4:18. this also happens to be the theme first for our school this year. Because what we realize is the only thing that can truly set us free is the love of God before we can ever obey his commandments. There's, this is how it reads. 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear 
in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not protected in love. There is no fear, which is the Greek word phobos, where we get the word phobia, in agape, in the love of God, the unconditional, undeserved love of God, the love of the will. There is no phobos in agape. Now, I like to call this wait till your father gets home verse. My mother used that phrase highly effectively in my life because she was a stay-at-home mom and she knew that if I did something that was disobedient, she had this very short phrase that she could whip out any time and use it effectively to put the fear of God in me, and she knew it. And the context of 1 John 4 is in the context of the return of Christ. If you look at verse 17, John writes, By this love is perfected with us that we may have confidence when? In the day of judgment. What kind of judgment? If he's talking to the church, he's talking about a judgment of works in terms of we are to live our lives with the expectation that Christ will return at any moment. By the way, the church in the first century was just as expecting Christ as much then as they are now, as we are now. We believe in his return. We believe that Jesus said, as I left, I will come back to you. As you saw me go up, I'm going to come back down. What goes up does come down. And he is. And the early church had a very strong expectation of the future appearing of Christ, not as the meek and mild shepherd, but as the one who comes with his armies of heaven, with the sword of, of truth, and to come and judge. But for the believer, it's not a judgment of wrath. It's a judgment of works. It's a judgment of, I gave you a stewardship. What have you done with it? I've given you so many talents. I've hoped that you've invested your life. How well have you loved me and others? That's the test of our faith, but it is not unto, unto, unto death. It is, a, is it a judgment of works and how well we've been stewards of what God has given us. We don't have to fear that unless, and John says it here in 1 John 4, unless you don't believe he loves you perfectly. What sets me free to love God with everything I have? Is it the fear of his coming and that he's going to punish me? No. It's the expectation that a, a perfect lover... And a relationship that I've never experienced on a, on a personal level, only through God, and, and even that partially because I'm not, he's, I don't see him face to face yet. Only that type of relationship, perfect love, will set me free to experience all that God intended. Just like with Martin Luther, I get it. You mean righteousness is something that's been given to me as a gift? I don't have to earn it? But boy, we love trying, don't we? We really love trying to try to figure out a way to unlock his love when it's already been given. It's like living in a prison cell and the door has never been locked. You can walk at any time. Martin Luther finally found the key and the combination. The Apostle Peter knew of this expectation, the anticipation of the return of Christ. When he, in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 13, he says, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth. He actually used this to, to encourage the persecuted church to say, this isn't all there is. There's going to be a day when God is going to remake all of this. And guess who's going to be sitting at the throne? It's not going to be Caesar. It's going to be the Lord himself. Paul, in, Thessal in, the church, in the letter to the Thessalonians, he said, don't let anyone disturb you because they're saying that the day of the Lord has already come. That was a false teaching. He hasn't come yet. And some people thought they missed the love boat. It had gone out of port. The ship had sailed. No, he hasn't been back yet. He's still coming. His return is still yet future. Let's continue to live with the great hope and anticipation of his coming again. I remember 
and you, you remember these experiences and you have a catalog of, of them in your mind where you did something that you knew was wrong and then you waited to be punished for it. I don't know how old I was. I could have been in kindergarten, maybe first grade. And I, my dad was an engineer and he, I, I was always fascinated by watching him tinker with the car, um, mowing the lawn. So I decided while he was at work one day, I would be the helpful son and I would take out the lawnmower. One of the old school lawnmowers, you know, push. And um, actually had a motor on it, not the real old school. But I took out the lawnmower, and in the process of mowing, without his permission, I ran over a large rock. And it seized up the engine, just stopped it cold. You've heard people doing that, neighbors next door to you, and you kind of laugh when it happens to them. You go, ran over a sprinkler head. No, we don't do that, do we? Shame on you for laughing. I seized up the mower, so my mother whips out the phrase, wait till your father gets home. And I remember her calling him at work and telling her what I did. So I had the rest of the afternoon to think about the coming of my dad. And it wasn't a pleasant experience. I just wondered, because they didn't spare the rod with me either. And I seemed to be getting in trouble a lot. We lived near a highway, and I always liked playing with traffic. I don't know why. They built a fence around our yard, and I got out of the fence. They'd been, they put chicken wire on the fence, and I got underneath the fence. I was like the human mole. And back then, social services, I don't believe, was, a, um, was organized. And so one day, no joke, they put me in a harness and bungeed me to the oak tree in the middle of our backyard. And it's only today that I've actually been able to remove the scars from that experience and realize that it was love that drove them to say, we've given you a beautiful yard to play in. Stay here. We want you to be near us so we can keep an eye on you. But I look back at that, and my parents love telling that story. Everybody gets a big laugh out of it at family reunions. Yes, I was bungee to a tree. You want to see the burns from the harness? But God's the same way. He says, I've given you a wonderful area to play in. And I'm here to be guardian over what you're doing because I want to be intimate with you. I want to know you. And don't think of the harness as a restraining device. Think of it as a way to stay close to me, as, an, as a way of reminding us that his, his commandments, and John says it in this first epistle, are, his commandments are not burdensome. When the commandments of God become a burden, we have no longer related to him out of love. We are now relating to him out of fear. Because what he basically says in this passage is the opposite of love is not hate. It is what? Fear. Think about that. Let that soak in. The opposite of love is not hate. It is fear. And you think about this. In any relationship, whether it be marriage, girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, children, just friendship, what happens when the glue that keeps the relationship together is no longer agape love, love of the will? I choose to love you with all of your stuff as you choose to love me with all of my stuff. Once that commitment, covenantal love, I love you if, not if or because, but just, be, just because it's the right thing to do, no matter whether you are lovable at any given moment, when we replace the perfect love, the agape love, with something else, it, it transfers into a fear-based relationship. And then what happens? How do we relate to one another? When it's based on fear, it's now a... Cons- what is a woman's greatest fear? Let me just say this, in, in marriage, in dating. What is, she, what is her greatest fear in relationship to the man? Fear of, what is it? Abandonment. Will he ever leave me? And some of you have experienced that, painfully experienced that. You know what that feels like. And when you are no longer loved just because, an act of the will, I choose every day, just like we do with God. I don't understand you. 
It doesn't make sense to me. I don't feel you. That's when that's when the love of the will kicks in. But when that love of the will is no longer there and the relationship becomes based on I am afraid that if I don't perform a certain way, I will lose you. And so the relationship becomes proving that I am worthy of your love. Martin Luther knew he had blown blown it with his dad. His dad wanted him to be a lawyer. He becomes a monk. Some of you are living out the experience of being a great disappointment to your parents. They didn't want the track that you're on. That's not what they had in mind for you. So the love, the relationship is no longer one of love. It is fear. It is threat of leaving. It's a threat of being judged. How does it feel to be in a relationship with someone when you believe that all they're doing is picking you apart? That's a degeneration. That's a, that's a, a relationship that has been reduced to fear. And when you are in a fear-based relationship and you do that long enough, what begins to happen? Fear then turns into resentment. And it says, I don't deserve to be treated this way because I am made in the image and likeness of God. I know that I am somebody who is lovable. I know I've got problems, but I know there's a perfect love because I was built for heaven. I was built to commune with the Father, and I'm on a, on a, on a search my entire life to find that intimacy with him. And I know that you're not the one who's going to love me perfectly. I understand that. There is no human being that will do that for me. But what happens when we give up on the fact that we are truly loved because we've been loved so poorly in this life, we translate that to the Father and we interpret that as I am not lovable, so I need to figure it out. I need to develop a strategy in my life to find love and to get it from someone or something. And so our whole life is spent in, in fear of being abandoned. Fear of not measuring up. That, my friends, is bondage. That is bondage. And that's what John is talking about in this passage. I was speaking to one of the staff at school just this week, and I finally remembered who it was, but I'm not going to share that. But a woman uh, came up to me, one of our teachers, and she said, and I don't know what the context was, but she said, the only time that my dad spoke the words, I love you, to me, was on my wedding day. Never heard it before. Never heard it since. What does that do to you inside? What does that do to a woman when she says, the only time my father ever told me he loved me was on my wedding day? Oh, my. Is there maybe some relationship out of fear there? Wow. Why couldn't you say that, Dad? What is it about me? Did she never hear from him that you're treasured, that you are a beautiful young lady? That there's, you need to wait until a man who appreciates and values and cherishes you and protects you comes along. You understand that struggle that goes on in your heart when there's been an abandonment of agape love. We know we're loved by the Father, but my goodness, when somebody loves us poorly, does that impact us? Does that give us a sense of who the Heavenly Father might be? Of course it does. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's an image. Marriage is a miniature of the church we're the bride he is the groom he waits in great expectation for the marriage supper when he can celebrate our consummation but my goodness the scars that we live with just like martin luther who walked through his life thinking my dad hates me well guess what i hate him too because then we will fight fear with fear we develop a whole new strategy when have we ever stopped needing our father's approval to this day when my dad comes over because my dad valued organization, tools, structure. I'd always 
find it fascinating when he was in the garage or in the, in the basement because he had this great workbench and he has a tool for everything. So to this day, and I don't even realize it sometimes, when my dad's going to come over, I make sure the garage door is up. Because I take the, my favorite room in the house is my garage because I got the bench. I got the tools hanging up on the pegboard. I'm organized. And I, I love working with my hands. I love figuring out how to fix things. But I want my dad to show, acknowledge in some level that he sees what I've done. Say something. <laughs> nice tools. Yeah. That's how men communicate. Yeah, thanks. That's as deep as it gets, folks. <laughs> When's dinner? Yeah. About them Broncos. So we do get to a certain level, then we just skip right off of it. I related to my dad. I think I shared this with you a few months ago when I was here. Um, and I, I related to my dad for the majority of my life out of fear. Um, I secretly resented my father's weakness. Uh, my dad was always working. I don't have many memories of really connecting with him on any level. It was my mom that I connected with, and then the Lord took her in my, my college years. So I was left with my dad, who I never really had that, a bond with. He provided a roof over our heads. He always, they were married for 30 years. He did, he was a good man. But even as I read Wild at Heart, I realized, is, is, is the purpose or plan of God for Christian men to be nice? God help us. If that's what it's all about, I'm to be a nice guy. You look like nice people, gentlemen. You look really nice. Is that what the legacy is you want to leave with your family? He was nice. That's not what I want. I want to be somebody who's moved into the confusion of life and really risked vulnerability and, and, and trusted God with my fear and say, I, you love me perfectly. You've set me free to enter my life with boldness and courage. But I need help because I am a scared little boy. And guess what? My dad was too. And now as, a, as an older man, I can appreciate how much fear he had in his life. But I resented it because my mom had to pick up the slack for his lack of engagement with me. My mom and I became very close, but I saw what she had to do to compensate for his passivity, for his weakness. And I resented it because I'm built in the image of God as a man, as a male who was to move boldly into his world and make a difference. And I saw my dad only as a nice man. He was an elder. He would teach once in a while in the church. But there was no passion. There was no passion between them, my, my mom and dad. And I knew, even though I didn't have all of, I, I, didn't, have, I didn't study relationships, I wasn't an expert at that in, in high school and college, but I knew there was something missing. I knew that that's not what I wanted. And so for the majority of my adult years, I resented him for that. And I realized that the relationship had moved from loving him as an imperfect human being because I was looking for a dad who loved me perfectly. And yet what I didn't do was transfer that to go, let the imperfection of love in this life move us to, to the Father. Because we all live with this groan, Paul says, with this ache, that this is not it. This is not the party. This is not the final reunion. There's still more to come. Let the imperfections of my parents lead me to understanding that there is a perfect love. There's a perfect lover. And that's the whole purpose of the imperfection, that we long for a day when we can be in a presence of perfect love. That's what God designed us for. But you know something? I never abandoned my father's need, my need for my father's approval to this day. But my dad and I are on a very different level right now because of crisis. Has God forced you to go deeper with somebody because of crisis? 
Has he forced you to stop living on a level of superficiality when all you have to talk about is what kind of brats are we going to barbecue? To the place where you can say, Dad, I'm really struggling with my career. I don't feel like I'm enough for my wife. I feel like she hates me. I feel like I'm just never enough. I'm never good enough. She's always disappointed. When you can get to that level, but God will allow something to happen. He does this because of his passion for us to say, stop living in fear. I don't want you to be like Luther. I want you to live with a deliberate involvement, movement into somebody's life and say, can we get beyond the, the weather? Because to touch a man's soul, there has to be more than that. We pretend to be superficial. We pretend to be Neanderthals. We do go into our cave. We do chew on old turkey legs. We do throw rocks. We scratch and we make bodily noises. We do that kind of stuff. So I'm not saying that's wrong. There's a place for that. I thank God for that because I just find that enjoyable. However, (laughs) we're not Neanderthals, man. We still have a soul. We still have a heart that beats. We still have thoughts. We still struggle. But we live, as the, the author said, lives of quiet desperation because we think everybody's against us. I'm never good enough. I have so much fear. So I'm going to live my life. I'm going to control what I can and stay away from what I don't understand. And then God puts a woman in your life. (laughs) You're laughing. I don't understand you. You're like spaghetti. I'm a waffle. Isn't it interesting how marriage, Paul calls it a mystery, just like Christ in the church. It's the same way as a husband and wife. It is a mystery we don't kill each other. That's another sermon. So what I would like to kind of leave with you today is this gathering here is not what I would consider to be an intimate setting. I'm talking, you're listening. If we peel back the veneer of our Christian performance, of, our, of our, what we see each other doing and saying, if we were to peel that back, how many of us would admit that our battle in the very quiet, secret places of our life are not unlike Luther? Where we've got a father who we don't think loves us that much. He's, we're so disappointing to him. A dad, a biological father who's never satisfying. We're still living a life that we're trying to figure out how to measure up to him. How to get out of his lips, I love you. Not because you did well, but because you're mine. Because I'm blood. How many of us are still living for that? I think uh, we would admit that we do have that need, that longing. And it drives us. And Luther's chains fell off when he stopped frying, when he simply accepted and received. How hard is that? And why is that so hard to simply say, Father, thank you for dropping this gift on me. I don't know how to... Have you ever been given a gift that you're overwhelmed with and you go, how many times can I say thank you? But it still falls short. And you know what God asks in return? He says, love me. Love each other. I've set you free. You don't have to walk this earth trying to impress everybody, living out of fear, wondering who's the next person to disappoint me, who's the next person to reject me. Move in the power of God because he has freed you and he's freed me. My relationship with my dad today is different than it's been in 49 years because something happened that caused us to have to get face to face. And we had a really good fight, too, by the way. Fights are not a bad thing. A couple come to me and they want premarital counseling and I ask them, have you ever had conflict? Have you ever had an argument? No, 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 we love each other. <laughs> what book are you reading? How do you know how the person responds to conflict? Because you're going to have it. 
And if you're not having it, there's something even more wrong with you. You don't know each other that well. He's man, you're a woman. Ugh, there's tension. Again, I don't want to keep going off on these, but um, as, as Luther said, from that point on, when he realized the righteousness of God is a gift, and I can live in peace because now I know that it's not me trying to prove I'm righteous, but I'm simply receiving the gift of righteousness, he said, at that point on, the phrase, the justice of God, no longer filled me with hatred, but rather became unspeakably sweet by virtue of a great love. I love that. I love that. And as men, it's hard for us to understand the love of God because we've sexualized it. We don't see it as someone who has permeated every fiber of our being, understands the places of deep fear and insecurity that I'm not enough and I feel incompetent all the time and I'm just faking it right now because somebody's going to pull back the curtain someday and figure out I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, my goodness. Every so often, you know, I love going to the grocery store when they're handing out little mini samples. Because you can have lunch while you're shopping. Instead of ripping open a bag of Twinkies while you're pulling stuff off the shelves. You just have people giving little mini sausages and they're giving you salsa and crackers. And you're going around and you're, you know, stuffing your cheeks, giving it to your kid and what they don't eat, you finish. It's really fun. And so what I, I think that the Christian life, because we will not experience the perfect love of God until, again, we see him face to face. But I think of the love of God as those tastes. The people that have those samples out there are saying, if I can just get it in your mouth and you can taste it. What, is he, what are they hoping you'll do? Buy it. That's exactly what the love of God does. It's a taste of things to come. It's, it's put on the lips and say, oh, that's good. And Jesus said, there's more where that came from. There's going to be a lamb someday. And it's going to be a party. But I want you to give a, get a taste of who I am. And, and when the love of God impacts our lives and it throws open a window like it did for Luther, we go... Why have I been living like this all my life? I've been eating crackers and cheese when there was a steak. There's so much more depth and richness to what I could have experienced with God. And God says, I want to lavish on you love. I'm in love with you. Not because you're so great, but because of my great love for you. I created you. I want nothing more to be with you. I come back someday to take you so I can be with you. Isn't that cool? And I imagine most of you that came to Christ, you came to Christ... Most of you, because somebody loved you well, not because you read a book on theology. Somebody loved you really well. And what they did was they said, here, slide a cup toward you and say, there's something in here that if you just put it on your palate, you will never go back. You will buy the whole thing. Get a taste of Christ. Get a taste of the perfect love of God, and you will look for it. But you know what happens? As we live life, we accumulate doubt. We accumulate fear. We accumulate disappointment. And what begins to happen to that original taste that was on our tongue? It gets replaced by other tastes, bitterness, things that cause almost a poison in our soul. And we forget what that original sample was like. And we long for it because we knew how sweet that was. The gospel is about freedom. It's about moving not just away from something, but towards someone. We're real good at the moving away part. Christians, it's sin management. Don't sin. Don't do this. We have a list of things we shouldn't be doing, right? We don't do all this kind of stuff. That's what Christians are known for today. We're homophobes. We're not, we hate Democrats. We hate Hollywood. We hate Halloween. We know what, we, what we're against. What are we for? And that movie, did a, a video did a great job of showing that. People know what we're against. But do they know the freedom that comes from being loved perfectly? 
So wait till the Father comes home becomes, I hope, in our lives. I can't wait till the Father comes back to take me home. That's the anticipation, isn't it? That's the great hope. How do you live this life without that expectation? This is it? This is it? There's, there's nothing after this? There was a great teacher in the 20th century named Karl Barth. Just brilliant theologian. Once somebody dared to raise their hand after a lecture and they said, Professor Bart, if you could sum up what was the most important thing you've learned in your whole life theologically, what would you say? And everybody in the room gasped. You don't ask this man, how do you sum up your entire life work? And he says, yes. He responded, in the words of a song my mother used to sing me, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Don't lose the sweetness of the simplicity of the message that he loves you doesn't mean that he, his wrath, his anger is no longer in existence, but it doesn't exist for you if you're his child. Someday he'll ask you, well, how did you do with what I gave you? But he will not judge you and, and separate himself from you. He will welcome you in. And he says, I have waited for this day. I've longed to embrace you. Welcome home. I hope that brings you some encouragement today. Let us, uh, let's pray together. Father, we are children that are full of fear. Jesus said so many times, fear not, or don't be afraid, over and over and over again. You know that we are bound up with fear, and the enemy loves to take that fear and drive us into the ground with it. But we are children of, of the promise. We are children of God. We are no longer enemies of God. We are, we are friends of God. We have become fellow heirs of the grace of life. We are beloved. We are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. I pray today that if there's one person who maybe a couple of the links in the chain begin to melt off, that that would be, that would be so encouraging. That we don't live out of fear. We don't relate to you out of fear. Because perfect love casts out fear. We're not here to receive your punishment anymore. And we pray for those who are not believers, who've never said, I am not the Lord of my life. There is someone else who needs to drive this life, who needs to be sitting on the throne, that they would experience reconciliation. They would experience a, a beautiful reunion with you. Give us that taste again, Father, of the original sweetness and, and purity and simplicity of the love of God today. Set us free to love well and to receive your love in the process. And we'll give you this now in Jesus' name. Amen. And I believe you're dismissed, right?